Vaughn, let's stand and take our Bibles this morning. James chapter 5, the book of James chapter 5. Go all the way to the back of the New Testament by the book of Revelation, the book of James chapter 5. If you're a first-time guest and visitor, we welcome you this morning to Heritage Baptist Church. And uh, if folks, if you can look around, someone doesn't have a Bible, would you be kind enough to share your Bible with them and help them find their spot? We're thankful for many folks who are visiting on vacation here today. We're honored that you're here, and we know we have members that are out on vacation right now, too, and we're praying for them that God will bless their day in the house of the Lord. James chapter 5, go down to verse 16 with me. We're going to look at verses 16 to 18 this morning as we continue our series on prayer. James chapter 5. Am I on? Brother Bishop, am I on? Okay, good. Are you there? Amen. All right. Let's have a great time today in the house of the Lord. Be here tonight. It's going to be a great service. Pastor Tokero is going to be here. You'll be encouraged by his ministry. God has done a miracle ministry there. And over 30 30 folks have been sent out into full-time service serving God. There are many, many preachers and a great work of faith. Confess your faults one to another. And pray one for another that you may be healed. The factual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you've never underlined that verse, this morning, underline it. Elias was a man subject to like passion as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. Underline those four words. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. This morning as we study this passage of Scripture, it gives us vital principles on the power of prayer. Prayer is not a myth. Prayer is not a magical cantation. Prayer is your privilege and my privilege to invoke the power of God to work in your behalf and mine. And this is our prayer this morning that God will transform Heritage Baptist Church into a praying church, much like what was evidenced in that first century when James wrote this epistle here. Heavenly Father, thank you today already for how our hearts have been blessed and our cups are overflowing with blessing. Thank you for Ashley and God in following you in scriptural baptism this morning. And, uh, God, we're so excited for her and for Edgar, what you're doing in their lives. Grow them in the faith. Thank you for their son who recently trusted Christ as his Savior. And we pray that you'd bless that the children would catch the faith of their parents, as well as their Sunday school teachers, and as, as well as of their pastor. We're praying this morning for this wonderful congregation of people today. First of all, God, that we would have a hunger and thirst for you. Jesus said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And, Lord, if we came in... With no expectation, Lord, change that even now this moment. God, we pray that you give us a desire for the word of God, a desire to be fed in our souls and be built up in the word of grace. The Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom that we might sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Please do a great work in our lives. Please help us to understand the principles of prayer and take, Lord, maybe perhaps unfruitful prayer times and make them fruitful. And make, Lord, our our lives to see the great dynamic you've placed in our possession, the stewardship of our prayer lives for your glory. 
Father, work in our hearts today. We pray that you'll bind the devil from hindering my brothers and sisters today. And we pray this morning that, uh, that the, those here today who have never put their faith and trust in Christ as Savior, that God, today might be the day they recognize the Spirit knocking at their door and the importance of opening the door and letting Christ come in to save them from their sins. Then we pray for the Spanish meetings with Pastor Setmeyer. Please bless Brother Setmeyer in a great way. Use him today to help rally our Spanish-speaking folks together. And uh, God, may we see souls saved in that department and uh, a revival that would resonate in our hearts, a flame of fire that would you create in our hearts. Bless the services throughout this day. Use everything for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're still in this series on all about Jesus, but we've kind of... Uh, reduced it down. We've broken it down to a, a series on prayer. And we're taking our thought from what the disciples asked of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 11.1 1, when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And quite honestly, the, the goal in this series is that God would teach us to pray. And I think if all of us are very honest with ourselves and we should be honest with God, there's a lot we still need to learn about prayer. I think there's a good number of us that desire that, that we would pray in accordance with God's will. I think there's a great number of us that want to see our prayers answered. I think there's a great number of us that want to know how to get a hold of God and how God can get a hold of us. And the goal is that regarding prayer is that we would view prayer as important to our spiritual life as breathing is to our physical life. Uh, this, we've seen an introduction to prayer. We've seen the importance last week of faith and prayer. And this morning, we're drilling deeper beneath the surface to learn how to pray and to consider, uh, to see the consistent results that God wants us to have as contained in James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Now, this morning, as we start off, there'll be some teaching. And as we go along, there's going to be some preaching. Amen. And I promise you this morning that as we get through this, that God will stir our hearts about this matter of prayer. And I hope that we approach this series with just an anxiousness that God, please work in our heart. This morning we're looking at the subject of the power of prayer, how prayer can change our lives, how prayer can change situations, how prayer can change our society, how prayer is the difference maker in everything we do. Notice four things this morning about this passage of scripture. First of all, what you notice as we go to this passage, notice with me the absence of prayer. And to understand where James is coming from in James chapter 5, I want you to go back with me to chapter 4 and notice verses 1 and 2. And you'll notice here that James is addressing what I call the absence of prayer. Notice in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, James wrote this, For whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that warn your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Now, as we look at that, it's kind of puzzling. What in the world does fighting and wars and strife and divisions have to do with prayer? Well, to understand all this this morning, we must understand James is writing to a lot, a number of believers that have been scattered abroad. Persecution had set in place very early in the, in the life of the Christian church, and, the, and Christians were fanning out across the landscape, and many of them were unsettled in things. They found their play in new churches and places that were sprouting up. And you have to understand, churches, when people go to church, there's all kinds of different personalities and people that make up the church. And as he's writing there, he's recognizing that many of these believers had never been schooled or taught or introduced to the matter of prayer. So James takes time through the, his little epistle, it's only five chapters, 
Three different times at a minimum, he talks about prayer. Notice in James chapter 1, verse 5, he teaches us how to pray. He tells us how to pray for wisdom. Notice what he says there. If any of you lack wisdom, by the way, I lack wisdom, and I think you do too, amen? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. God promises that we ask for wisdom out of a pure heart. God says he is liberal in providing us wisdom, and he doesn't hold out on us. Now, the wisdom specifically, he's talking about is wisdom when we're going through trials. Listen, when you go through trial, one of the first things we need to pray for is, Lord, first of all, Lord, teach me what you want me to learn from this trial. Every trial we go through, we don't want to waste the trial. Amen. We want to make sure that that trial does its work and help us to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Apostle Paul was, we had prayed several times for God to take away a health trial that he had. And the Bible says God, God did not take it away. And God told him this. He says, my grace is sufficient for thee. He says, most gladly, therefore, I rather suffer my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And Paul was saying there, sometimes God's will is not to do what we want, but it's to fulfill his will in our life. We need to pray for wisdom that God would help us to understand that. In James 1, 5, it teaches to pray for wisdom. By the way, many times, you might have listened to this, many times when we pray during a trial, God does, it is not God's will to substitute during that trial. In other words, to take away the health problem. Many times God uses the health problem for transformation. So many times we must be careful that our praying is asking for transformation and not substitution. Because many times our selfish, fleshy desires are saying, Lord, well, please take it away. Maybe God doesn't want to take it away. Maybe God wants it to stay in with us so that we would be transformed into his image there. So we're to pray for wisdom. And then notice James chapter 5, which we just read. He teaches us principles about the power of prayer in James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. But in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he tells us another principle about prayer. He wants us to be, he wants us to understand the problem of the absence of prayer. You see, James, as he writes about this, was not writing as an expert, but I believe he was writing as a man who prayed. I believe he was writing as a man who wanted us to be wise concerning prayer. I believe he wrote this as a man who wanted the body of Christ that he was writing to, to be concerned that they have a prayer life. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, and ladies and gentlemen today, God wants you and me to pray. Prayer is to be as automatic to our Christian life as brushing our teeth in the morning or taking the next breath of air. Prayer should be a part of the Christian life. A Christian who doesn't pray is a Christian who's lacking fire. A Christian who doesn't pray is a Christian who's halting short the spiritual productivity of their Christian life. God wants us to pray. God wants us to pray to draw near to Him. God wants us to pray so we have spiritual victory in our lives there. He, he was concerned that these believers knew that prayer is the vital link to our fellowship with God. John Bunyan said this, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can not do more than pray until you have prayed. James believed in prayer. I believe in prayer. I pray that you believe in prayer. He know that, but as he writes James chapter 4, notice there are some things he's talking about that hinders our prayer life. There are hindrances to praying. Notice how he starts off chapter 4 as he, he's continuing on a wave of things he started in chapter 1, he talked about in chapter 2, he spent a lot of time in chapter 3 about, and then we get to chapter 4 and he just drops the bomb in them. He says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? The bodies of Christ that he's writing to, there was strife, 
There was division. There was animosity. There was contention. There was there was race. There was racism. There was discrimination. There was all kinds of people issues that the churches during that time experienced. You have to understand during those days, there was an admixture of a number of different groups that made up the church. There were poor and there were rich. There were slaves and there were masters. There were different groups of people. There were Gentiles and there were Jews that made up the church. And all those people, they still had their old sinful nature like you and me. And they came into church with some of their reservations and some of their their concerns and they're thinking well i don't know if i want to be part of church that has that kind of person there and i don't know if i want to be part of a church that has that kind of person there and so all these things are happening james is very in tune with that and by the leading of the holy spirit he's addressing that but he's talking about here these wars, these strife, these divisions, these animosities among believers, the animosities in their marriages, the animosities among members. He's saying, look, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not of your lust, which, uh, come they not hence even of your lust to warn your members? And he's saying there's hindrances in our praying. Hey, brother and sister in Christ, in our praying, we must understand many times unanswered prayers are because there is strife in our hearts. There's marital strife. There's strife between members. There's strife between brothers and sisters. There's strife with other people. And Jesus makes very clear in the Gospels, if we harbor any resentment, if we harbor any unforgiveness in our heart and towards anybody or anything, in those situations, God cannot answer our prayers. There were hindrances. And listen, in the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of church, it is to be a place where Jesus said, by, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. He said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. And as brethren, we must understand, we, we need to work Past the difficulties and not be a people to take little molehills and make them into mountains. And we must understand this morning that many things that we disagree about, many of those things are preferences that really don't matter much to God. What's really important is that we stay firm upon the doctrines of the word of God. And so these brethren here that James is writing to, there were wars and there was strife and there were divisions. There was power wrangling. There was criticism and strife. He calls it lust to warm our members. Listen, when we are someone like Proverbs says, we want to be first in our own cause, that we're always right and everybody else is wrong. And I don't care what the preacher says. I don't care what my husband says. I don't care what my wife says. I don't care what this person says. And we're always right and everybody else is wrong. The Bible says they come from our lust, which warn our members. Do you understand something this morning? Our sinful nature is terrible. Our sinful nature is filled with hatred and hostility and animosity against God and against man. Many times when the children of Israel rebelled against God, God had to remind Moses, who got very discouraged about that, I had to remind Moses, Moses, the problem is they're not angry with you, they're angry with me. If they're showing they're angry with you, you just have to keep bear in mind the real problem, the root of the problem is they're angry with me. And so James is writing about a problem here that these people have. You see, drilling beneath the surface of the heart, he flat, flatly tells them that the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. And he's telling them here, listen, the hindrances you have here are because of these strife. But he's not only talking about hindrances. Notice he's talking about things that halt praying, that halt up the power of God. And he says, in verse 2, you lust and have not. You're fighting, you're power wrangling, you're criticizing, you're holding grudges, you're unforgiving, and nothing's being accomplished. He says you kill, you're assassinating one another, you're taking each other out, you're, you're, you're hindering each other's lives. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. And then he says you fight in war. Then he makes a statement which is so powerful. He says, yet you have not because 
you ask not. He says the root of the problem is this. There are Christians and believers who are not praying. You have not because you ask not. You're praying outside the will of God. You're praying for God to do what your lust says rather than what is the will of God for their lives. He says the problem with these believers was that they're not praying. You have not because you ask not. The absence of prayer. The absence of prayer is the sin of prayerlessness. Samuel said this to the children of Israel. God forbid that I should sin and ceasing to pray for you. Uh, Paul said, pray without ceasing. All of our sin problems can be traced to a prayer problem. There is an absence of prayer. James is addressing a number of dynamics going on with these believers. And he boils it down to this in chapter 4, verse 2. That he says, you have not because you ask not. We want revival, but we're not praying for revival. We want someone else to change, but we're not waiting for God to change us. We want the church to grow, but we're not praying for growth. I'm saying this morning, he says, you have not because you ask not. You see, the absence of prayer indicates we have little to no fellowship with God. The absence of prayer indicates little to no fruit. The absence of prayer is an indication why we is, is a root problem behind our marital disharmony. The absence of prayer is why souls are not getting saved. The absence of prayer is why some do not have victory over certain sins in their lives. This morning, Paul James is just drilling right to our faces and telling us today, you have not because you ask not. There's the sin of prayerlessness. There's the absence from being in the presence of God. Prayer will either make a man to cease from sin or sin will cause a man to, to, to uh, sin will cause a man to cease from prayer. My question this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, do we pray? Did we pray this morning? How do we pray this week? What does our prayer list look like? When was the last time we confessed our sins to God? And I'm not talking in general categorization. I'm talking naming our sins specifically one by one. Do we pray? When's the last time we prayed for our missionaries? How many of us even knew this morning before Brother Sutmeyer was introduced to come open prayer that we even knew that he was one of our missionaries that we support over Mexico City? I mean, how many of us prayed? How many of us took time this week to pray for the ministries of the church? By the way, how many of us took even five minutes this week to pray for our marriages and pray for our children? How many of us even took five weeks, five minutes this week to pray for the ministries of the church. He says, ye fight and war, ye lust and have not. He says, ye have not because ye asked not. Oh, brother and sister in Christ, before we can understand the power of prayer, before God can work in our lives and answer prayers, we must come to grips with the, the, the question, is there an absence of prayer in our life? Is there a time that we have an isolated time where we can identify during the day and during the night where we meet with the presence of God and we can say there's holy intimacy between us and God. David said this in Psalm chapter 5, morning evening and noon shall I cry unto thee, O Lord. David believed in prayer so much, he prayed a minimum three times a day. We read about Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, and we preached about that several months ago, how Daniel opened the windows of his room, and he looked towards Jerusalem. And the Bible says he prayed morning and evening and noon. I'm saying this morning, prayer is not to be part of a pastime. Prayer is to be a priority in the life of every Christian this morning, we see the absence of prayer. But go back to chapter 5 this morning. As we consider that thought that, that kind of stirs our hearts and should prick our conscience this morning. Would you notice the second thing? Paul, James deals with the absence of prayer. But notice in James chapter 5 verse 16, he talks about an absolute principle of prayer. In verse 16, if you'll grasp what I'm going to say in this next moment, it'll help us immensely in terms of understanding the dynamics of prayer. Now, in leading into this, James is dealing with spiritual sickness in the church. 
church. When he talks about confessing their faults one to another, he's dealing with these faults or these problems that the church, the churches were dealing with at that time. And that was there were people problems. There were relationship issues. There were people that had grudges. There were people that had reservations. There were people that filled with hatred and people filled with intoleration towards other believers. There was divisions and strife and things of that nature. And so he's saying about confessing their faults. He's specifically talking about the faults they have between each other. He's not talking about me going to this brother over in the front seat here or the brothers over here in this front row and telling them all my sins. He's not advocating a confession booth. Amen. He's not advocating that we go and we go to the pastor and tell the pastor all of our sins and things of that nature. No, what he's saying there and confessing our faults, he's dealing with those specific faults and sins that are found throughout the, the, the epistle of James there. So he's dealing with spiritual sickness in the body of Christ there. And he's saying we need to confess our faults one to another. The healing he's talking about specifically, if you look at the context, the healing is dealing with spiritual healing of our souls, the spiritual healing of the rifts between us and other members of the body of Christ or us or family members there. So he says in chapter 5 verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray for another one another that you may be healed. Now I'll tell you this morning, if you have a rift, you have a division, you have animosity, you have hatred, you have reservation, you have some, some reservation of some kind in your mind, I'm going to tell you this morning, you're spiritually sick. You're spiritually sick. And if you're spiritually sick, you need to get wellness. You need to get healing. My father's 91. He will turn 91 uh, a little bit later this year. And um, we've been watching him for the last couple of weeks. And he had a stroke a couple of years ago. And half his, half his body is impaired. He really cannot uh, ambulate on his own. And, and uh, we're watching. We spent part of Saturday afternoon last week with him for Father's Day and just encouraging him. And just dad's been very, very sick. And so he had a scheduled appointment. I took him to on Monday to see the doctor and found out Monday while he was there. I just had the suspicion that he might have had pneumonia. It's just his breathing was very heavy and, and, and labored and so forth there. And uh, as the doctor is approaching the office after he got him in, the doctor is down the hallway. He's approaching. I hear the doctor come in. And I was going to say, doctor, I think my dad has. And he says he does before I even said pneumonia. He said he does have pneumonia. And immediately he went into action and resolved a number of things. My dad was very sick this week. He's had three major inoculations of antibiotics to kind of wipe this out and get him back on track. It was, it, was, it was serious enough. The doctor even made a house call visit yesterday to go visit dad to make sure he got another inoculation to help him with that. So it's been kind of the, just one of those weeks to just uh, take care of family, things like that. But dad was very, very sick. And because dad was very, very sick, it was important that he had medical attention very quickly. 90 years of age, you've had a stroke, you've got pneumonia, you're high risk for a lot of bad problems there. Amen? There's a lot of high risk there. Let me tell you this morning, Christians who are living with animosity in their hearts and hatred in their hearts and differences and divisions, things like that, you're at high risk for the devil taking you out. You're at high risk for God not being able to bless and use your life for the glory of God. And so Paul, uh, James is writing to these believers. And he's saying, listen, let's get this right. Let's get right with each other. Let's let go of our reservations. Let's stop waiting for the other person to come to us first. Let's be the one that takes the initiative and go out. And then he says this in verse 16. He talks about an absolute principle of prayer. He says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now I'm going to tell you this. You can go to Bible college. You can go to some, some seminary somewhere. And they're going to write some book and tell you all these different things. But I don't believe any book that's ever been written will improve upon the principle here, this absolute principle of prayer that James has given to us as children of God. And let me just say this morning, you don't need to go to Bible college and you don't need to go to seminary and you don't need to get stuck in some room somewhere reading 25 books to learn how to pray. Just pray, amen? You just get, get open the Bible, read the Bible, follow the examples of the Bible characters as we're going through the series and you'll learn how to pray. And so James is teaching us, he says the effectual 
fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now he's saying there, here's how your prayers can be powerful. Here's how your praying can make a difference. Here's how your praying can change the world. Here's how your praying can change your life. Here's how your praying can change bad habits in your life. Here's how your praying can be the difference maker in Christianity. He, he says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice he gives us these absolute principles. Notice, first of all, as we look at this, we're going to break this down. Number one, would you notice powerful praying is conditional. Now look again at that verse. If we don't meet those requirements, God is not inclined to answer our prayers. So we need to understand what does he mean? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. For some this morning, I don't say this to ridicule anyone, but for some people, the only prayer they utter all week long is, Lord, bless my food. And, and that's about all God hears from them during the week. And when you get sick and a trial comes and you all of a sudden the emergency lights go on and you dial your 911, your spiritual 911, and you start praying. That's not what God wants us to do. Listen, much of our praying, if we're ever going to see in the times of crisis and times of trial, times of tribulation, times of difficulty, what prepares us for that is the praying that we do along the way each and every day, that isolated time that prepares us for that moment event. Notice the uh, powerful praying is conditional. But notice something else here. Powerful praying is consecrated. He says the effectual fervent prayer. Notice what kind of man? Of a righteous man. What does that mean, Pastor Fong? Does that disqualify us? What does that mean, a righteous man? Well, number one, a righteous man is one who's saved. Amen? We're saved by the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by joining a church. We're not saved by, by being part, by getting baptized. No, listen, righteousness comes which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And so righteousness begins by getting saved. Secondly, a righteous man is a man whose conscience between him and God is clear. It's like Paul said in, in the book of Acts, that my conscience is void of offense before God and before man. No, righteous, a righteous man. A righteous man is a man whose life is clean. His life is holy. He's obedient. Uh, he will see results when he's confessing his sins. The Bible tells us in Psalm 66, verse 18. If you've never read it, write that down. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Listen, we know. Listen, we pray. The Holy Spirit is a way of bringing certain things to our mind. And among those things the Holy Spirit brings to our mind are sins that we're guilty of. And if we don't confess those sins and say, God, I'm guilty of that sin. Please forgive me of that sin. I confess that. If we live with unconfessed sin in our life, God is under no constraints and obligation to answer our prayers. So notice this morning, prayer, powerful praying is conditional, but powerful praying is also must be of a consecrated heart and involves consecration. Proverbs 28, 9 says this, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. If we don't obey God, if we're turning our, way, our ears away from hearing the word of God, God is under no obligation, according to Proverbs 28, 9, to answer our prayers. Notice something else. Look again at verse, verse 16 here. Uh, uh, powerful praying is conditional. And powerful praying, if you would, is, it, must, it must be consecrated. But powerful praying must be courageous. Notice he uses a phrase, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Fervent praying is courageous praying. Fervent praying is asking for things we cannot accomplish. Fervent praying is like our church praying for this building program, which looked like an impossibility that's becoming a reality on the build out of this new building. Fervent praying is God answering the prayer of a faithful few that met for two and a half to three years, praying for this church to start and God birthing this church. Fervent praying with souls being saved. I'm thankful this week for staff members to go soul winning. And Brother Erwin was, uh, was giving the devotion this week, I believe it was, for, our, uh, for some of our folks, our men that came to play basketball. And, and on Tuesday night, we had a couple of 
of men that had been coming to our basketball event. And as the invitation was given, they pulled these men aside again and gave them the gospel. We praised God. God answered prayer. And these two men trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then yesterday, uh, we, were, we were just getting ready for soul winning. My wife and I were making some calls and visiting on some folks who were trying to get to church. And, and I got a text message along the way. And Brother Owen was sharing. He said, Pastor, just want to let you know that uh, God put some people in our heart that have been to church in a while and haven't been here for a while. And uh, we need to get them back in church. And, and they went to visit and hoping to talk with the wife and daughter and couldn't find out. They wound up talking to this lady's husband. And the husband had met them before, but the husband had two strokes in the last 90 days or so and just got out of the hospital three days ago. And by obeying the prompt of the Spirit and praying for God to lay some folks on his heart, God used that opportunity for Brother Erwin and Sister Kat to just give the other gospel. And this man, praised the Lord, he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior yesterday. Tears of joy came to his eyes because he knew there was a step between him and death. And he recognized that the next stroke he has might take him to eternity. We're thankful that yesterday this man settled that matter and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Hey, fervent praying is courageous. Hey, when's the last time we ask God to do something bigger than us and ask God to do something greater than us? Fervent praying is courageous. It's faith praying. Then notice something else. Powerful praying is continuous. Look again at the text here, verses 16 to 18. Fervent praying is continuously asking God. I'll say more about that in the next point. But it's asking God. It's not giving up. We're being persistent in our praying. We're going to keep on praying and asking God to intervene by this. Continuous praying is praying without ceasing. uh, Continuous praying is consistent praying. It's praying until the answer comes. It's praying until God says no to that that request. And so we see, as, as, as James is writing this, he's unbundling for us the absolute principles of prayer. Praying, powerful praying is conditional. And powerful Powerful praying is courageous and powerful praying must be consecrated and powerful praying, notice, must be continuous. But notice he uses a phrase here that really should grip us. He says, the effectual fervent. Powerful praying must be capable. Effectual. It means effective. Fervent. Together, we get the word strengthen to make strong. To make happen, to make occur, that changes the unchangeable. If our praying is somewhat uh, nonchalant and it has the indication that we don't care, God's not inclined to answer that. And the kind of praying that God is interested in hearing from us is praying that gets a hold of God. It has faith and dependence upon God. It is praying that recognizes we have an audience with God above. That we're praying until we know that God has met with us. It's capable praying. He says effectual, fervent praying. You say, Pastor, is that even possible? Yes, it is possible. But it's possible only if we spend time in the presence of God. It's only possible if we decide we mean business with God. That kind of praying Capable praying is praying that says, God, I mean business with you. God, I'm serious about this matter. If you go back to last year, 2016, it was a year of many, many health trials for our church and several families in here in this, in this room experienced, walked down the valley of the shadow of cancer and many walked down the valley of the shadow of serious illnesses and surgeries and things like that. And in the, the futures for many of our church family were somewhat uncertain as far as diagnosis, what would happen. And uh, we saw those things. But as a church, we put those faithfully on the prayer list. We rallied the church family together to pray over those matters and God answered every one of those prayers and God intervened either people were saved or God put that that disease and sickness on hold and God has intervened and even right now today there's some in this church building going through health trials and severe situations and I'm going to say this morning if God just where God has you today God's been pleased just to put it on hold and put it at bay and he's telling you just keep on trusting him keep on praying but but powerful praying must be capable praying it must be able to get a hold of God oh listen this morning 
Go find somewhere by your bedside. Go find somewhere in your office. Go find somewhere in your office cubicle at 5 o'clock in the morning. Go find somewhere around the church building on a Sunday morning at maybe about 6 o'clock in the morning and find yourself a chair and put a circle someplace and say, man, I'm going to pray and I'm going to stay here till I get a hold of God. Capable of praying and saying, it's effectual and fervent, saying, I'm not going to stop until God has done something for me there. Notice something else. This is, this is great. We're just talking about the absolute principles of praying. He says, a factual, fervent, prayer righteous man. Notice the next two words. Availeth much. Well, powerful praying is conditional. If we don't meet these conditions, God can't answer it. Powerful praying is consecrated. We've got to be righteous. Our sins must be confessed. We must be obedient to God. The Bible tells in 1 John 3, 22, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. It's conditional. It's consecrated. It must be courageous. We must pray for some audacious things. It's continuous. It's capable. But notice those two words, availeth much. Powerful praying must be copious. Powerful praying must be fruitful. Powerful praying avails much. Powerful praying shakes the, the, the windows of heaven. And God opens those windows and pours out His blessing. Copious praying is saying, God, we want you to do something great in our midst. We're praying that God will do something great over the next three nights with our Spanish-speaking department, with large numbers of people here that are Spanish-speaking, and people getting saved, and relatives hearing the gospel, and our hearts being revived. We're praying tonight when Pastor Tocaro comes, that God will stir our hearts for mission. And God will stir our hearts about winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Copious praying says, I'm praying because I want to see God answer my praying. Copious praying is saying, I want to see God avail as much. It is powerful praying. It accomplishes much good. It is productive. It is fruitful. It is life changing. It is God changing the unchangeable in our lives, our society and our circumstances there. So we see the apostle here, James, just telling us about the about the absolute principles of prayer. Now, as we read that this morning, we look at two things we've covered already. We see the absence of prayer. He says, you have not because you ask not. And he's encouraging us to get back to the place where we're praying. We see the absence of prayer. And, and then secondly, we looked at verse 16. And he talks about these, these absolute principles. They're unchangeable. These principles applied then. Those principles apply now. Those principles applied before James wrote that, back in the Old Testament. And they still apply right now for the 21st century. But there's one other thing we have to look at this morning. As he's writing this, these believers are like a lot of us here this morning. These believers he's writing to, many of them had not ventured out to learn how to pray. They were scared to pray. They were fearful to pray. They're thinking, I don't know if I have time to pray. I'm not sure. They said, well, I've got too much sin in my life. I don't know if God wants to hear me. They have all these spiritual insecurities that were coming out of them. And many of them were somewhat skeptical and doubtful about the principles of prayer that he was giving here. So notice, as, as James is writing this, he realized just giving them the principle alone was not sufficient. He recognized he had to tell them about an acknowledged practitioner. And he goes from there and gives them a living example that every one of those believers could identify with. Every one of those believers could acknowledge that they knew about. In fact, as he wrote to these Jewish believers there, and these Gentile believers, all of them knew about the name Elijah. They knew about Elijah's ministry. Elijah was an icon of, of, the, of, of the Jewish history. Elijah represents the great prophet of the Old Testament. 
Elijah was a man of God. If you come on Wednesday nights when I'm preaching here, we've been preaching about Elijah and we're going to be in Gen- and, and uh, 1 Kings 18 this Wednesday night, Lord willing, we're going to be preaching about Elijah. Elijah is one of the great characters of the Bible. He teaches us much about power. He teaches much about praying. He teaches much about faith. He teaches much about walking with God. He teaches how to have a successful Christian life. And so James, as he's writing, he recognizes some of those believers that were skeptical. And some of them were felt some reservation. They felt like, well, that's way beyond me. That's not possible. That might be possible for you, preacher, but it's not possible for the people. And he wanted to resolve all that and tell them, listen, it is possible. And I want to bring to your attention, he said, about an acknowledged practitioner. I want you to acknowledge someone with me that you know by history, you know by his practices what he did. And he uses Elijah, notice in verses 17 and 18, as a case study for them to understand how those principles of prayer worked in Elijah. Elijah's life. And so notice he says in verse 17. Elias or Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly (coughs) that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heavens gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. And he's talking about this man. They're thinking, well, we know about Elijah. And he he gives in just two sentences here a mouthful of theology that tells him about a man who lived his prayer life. A man who's a case study, an example for us to follow his pattern of prayer. And he talks about Elias. Well, what does he have to say about Elias? What do we want to acknowledge about him as a practitioner of prayer? Well, I want you to see some things tonight, this morning, because as we unbundle these verses and look at it as we move towards our close. I want you to notice this morning, Elias is a man that you and I can model our prayer lives after. You and I can say, that's the model God wants me to have. And that's the pattern God wants me to have to see answers to my praying and powerful praying. Notice first, as we look at Elias, we see something very interesting in verse 17. Notice Elias was fallible in his essence. Now this should encourage you because the Bible says Elias was a man Subject to like passions as we are. He said, what do you mean a fallible essence? You know what? Elias was human. Elias made mistakes. Elias was learning prayer like we are. And God put him into some heavy circumstances to teach him how to pray and to be a model of prayer. Listen, Elias comes on the scene if we can understand all these principles. The nation of Israel had gone into gross idolatry. The nation of Israel was under the, the rule and reign of a man by the name of Ahab who married a pagan woman by the name of Jezebel. And the two of them together combined to create such wickedness and atrocities in the nation of Israel. One of the first things they did was they eradicated the worship of God and established Baal worship, which is the worship of fertility and the rain and fruitfulness and the land and all these things. And they said, we don't need your God. We're going to put our God there. And they they, they they elevated the worship of Baal throughout all the land. And she made it illegal for anyone to worship God. In fact, she made it so illegal, even the very mention of Jehovah or Elohim was, was a crime. And would be and people would be sentenced to death. The prophets of God, of which there were many of them in that time. She was any, any of the prophets she could find. As we read in chapter 18, she would arrest these prophets and she'd have them killed. And there was a man by the name of Obadiah who would take them and, and whoever he could find. And he would hide them 100 at a time into a cave and he'd feed them bread and water. If you were a prophet or preacher during that time. It was the riskiest occupation you could ask of because if she found out you were a preacher, she was going to kill you right there on the spot. Any representation of Jehovah God would be eliminated. And so God raises up this man, Elijah, at a critical time. And in 1 Kings 17, 1, he appears out of nowhere. He's a mountain man. He's a man of Gilead. He's a, he's a man who traces his roots back to some, some pretty phenomenal people. Men of Gilead included men like Jephthah and men that were brave and that were bold and spiritual men that God used. And he was a mountain man. He was a shepherding man. 
Gilead. He spent much of his life up there in the hillsides of Gilead, walking with God. And God raised up this prophet as a young man. And he sent him down the hillside, all the way down to Samaria. And there at Samaria, he confronted Ahab. And he says, as the Lord my God liveth, there shall be no rain nor dew for the space of three years until the word of the Lord comes. And so he said that. He makes a statement. He preached a one-set message. And basically the message said, hey, Ahab, you're, li- you're going against God. God is still alive. By the way, God is still alive. Amen. God is, he says, you think God is dead. You're trying to tell the people God is dead. God is not dead. By the way, if you're in a public school system, university system, they're going to try to tell you there is no God and God doesn't answer prayer and things like that. I'm going to tell you God's still alive. Don't listen to the evolutionists and don't listen to the anthropologists. Just read your Bible and realize God is real and God's alive. Hey, hang around here at Heritage Baptist Church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, so many times, and watch God's alive because souls are being saved and God's doing some great things in the lives of people. He says, I'm going to tell you right now, Ahab, he says, God's alive and there's not going to be any rain nor dew. And he walks away. And he's thinking as he walks away, God, what do you want me to do? And he says, Elijah, go hide thyself. And he takes Elijah and he moves him out to this little area right before the Jordan River. Not to the Jordan River, but away, but close enough, but not right at the Jordan River. And he led him to this place where there was a brook and a brook was a, was a little water hole that collected rainwater. There were no tributaries that flowed into it. There was no waters that flowed from the mountains that flowed into Jordan that went into this brook. It was just a little brook that collected fresh rainwater. And it was during the time of the year where the rainwater had collected and now was shrinking because the sun was coming up. And God was telling these people, listen, I'm not going to send rain for the space of three years. Now, he didn't tell them that directly, but Elijah knew that. And they were not going to send rain. He says, Elijah, here's what I'm going to do. While all this is happening, she's going to put a, she's going to put a price on your head. She just took him, says, go hide yourself. Get away from all the drama that's going on with, with, with Jezebel and Ahab. He says, I want you to park yourself by the brook, by the brook Kirith there. You're going to stay there and you're going to sustain yourself until I tell you to move on. You're going to keep drinking from that brook. That brook would sustain him. And he said, morning and evening, I've sent the ravens to feed you. I thought that was pretty cool. God would, those were his B-52 bombers that would come in. Amen. Those were his stealth fighters that would come in. They take, they take a picnic lunch for somebody else and bring it over to Elijah and drop it off to Elijah. That would be his breakfast and dinner for that day. And so Elijah would have, would have bread and meat every, every morning and every evening. God would sustain him. And during that time, you have to think about, well, what was Elijah doing that whole time? Besides eating and drinking, what else did he do? He was praying. He was honing his skills. He was honing his spirit. He was honing his character. Listen, Elijah, while he was there, he was fallible in his essence. I, the Bible doesn't suggest it, but he, he was just like you and me. I think he had his periods during that one year that he was there by the brook Kirith where maybe just for a fleeting moment he was doubting the promises of God. I think there were times when temptation came to him when he thought, maybe I need to go back into regular civilization and go eat a regular meal at a restaurant somewhere. I think he had the same temptations as you and I. He was a man. He had the same kind of temptation that every man has in this room. He was a man who got tired. He was a man that got weary. Even while he prayed, there may have been some mornings he got up and he didn't feel like praying. And there were some days when he knew he needed to read his Bible and his spirit said he didn't, his spirit probably felt like he didn't want to read the Bible. He was fallible in his senses. He could fail like you and I, but the Bible saying this, it didn't matter that he was human. It didn't matter that he was way out in the woods somewhere. What really mattered was that God can work past our limitations, past our human weaknesses, past our weaknesses. God can work all past that and help you and I to be modeled and conditioned to being people of prayer. He was fallible in his essence. He was a man subject to like passions as you and I. He lived during a time of economic failure. 
He lived during a time when many of his contemporaries did not live for God. He lived, he was commanded to live by a drying brook. And the equivalency I can use, the analogy I can use about a drying brook, a drying brook would be like having a savings account and you're depleting your savings. Your savings goes from $1,000 down to $100, down to $1, down to zero. It was being depleted day by day, moment by moment. And he watched every day as the sun reached its zenith every day. He watched a drying brook, which could have been this big, get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And maybe every morning as he looked at it, maybe for just a fleeting moment, his faith thought, well, God, am I in the right place? And God, are you really going to take care of me? And God, where's the water going to come from? And, and he had to learn how to trust God one day at a time. Listen, he was a man, fallible in his essence and his makeup. He had doubts and he had worries. He had concerns. And he probably had mornings like I've had this week where he got up and says, Lord, I don't even feel like my prayers are even reaching you. He had the same concerns and insecurities like you and I. He was fallible in his essence, but still he prayed. And James wanted us to know and he wanted these believers writing to know. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter if you're old or whether you're young, if you're, you're, you're a college student, if whether you're a, an aged adult. It doesn't matter if you're retired or starting your career. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter your education level. Listen, every single one of God's children can pray. And God put that there so we wouldn't make excuses for not praying. And God put that there so we wouldn't shoot off, shoot off some skeptical reason why prayer doesn't work. I'm going to tell you, I'll testify to you this morning. And I wish I had time for the next two days to tell you from personal experience. I know that God answers prayer. There's a man who's fallible in his essence. And many of us live our lives thinking God's attracted to our strength. I appreciate what Pastor Paul Chapel said repeatedly over the last several years. God is not attracted to our strengths as much as he's attracted to our weaknesses. Well, Elijah's there and he's away from all the creature comforts of everything else. Out there in the wilderness, he's not at the Jordan River where there's an abundance of water. He's over at about a brook that's drying up and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Learning to trust God. He's an acknowledged practitioner. He was fallible in his essence. But notice in verse 17, we see something else. He was faithful in his exercise. Would you notice two words that should encourage your heart and mind? It says that about his fallibility, he was, he was a man subject like passions. We are. And then notice the next three words. And he prayed. Would you repeat that with me? And he prayed. Say that with me. And he prayed. That's how simple it was. He was faithful in his exercise. He prayed. He didn't read ten books on theology. And by the way, in my library, I probably got 17, 18 books on prayer. They're all good books. They're challenging books. I was just reading some excerpts last night from Samuel Chadwick that just really got a hold of my heart last night. But I'm going to tell you this morning, you can read all the books on prayer, but you need to go pray after you've read all the books on prayer. Amen. And he prayed, and he didn't have books on prayer, but he had a God he knew that answered prayer. And he prayed. The Bible says he was faithful in his exercise. Listen, don't make it complicated. The first thing to put on your to-do list when you leave church this morning is go pray. The next thing you're going to do tonight, before you put your hand on the pillow, go pray. The next thing you're going to do tomorrow morning, on Monday morning, is you get up out of bed and roll out of bed or get resurrected like I do on Monday mornings, amen, just go pray. Go talk to the Lord and speak to God. Listen, God told him, Elijah, go hide yourself. And there as he hid himself, he went to pray and he talked to God. Listen, hidden men are praying men. Hidden men are holy men. Hidden men are proven men. Hidden men are useful men. Hidden men are men that God takes on the backside and prepares them for something God wants to do. This man was faithful in his exercise. You'll never master the discipline of prayer unless you're praying. 
Then we see something else in these verses. He was fervent in his endeavor. He prayed. What did he pray? What did he pray for? He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Did you see the colon marks there? God sent him as a prophet saying, Ahab, there'll be no rain. But until God told him to stop praying, he prayed that it might not rain. God not only told him to tell him it would not rain, he was instructed by God to pray that it might not rain. Now, how do you, now where do you get that from? Well, first of all, if you, we don't have time to look at it, but in Deuteronomy chapter 11, I think verses 13 to 18 or so, it tells us there how God gave to Moses blessings and cursings for the land. And he told them, listen, if you obey me and you love me with all your heart, you keep my word. He said, listen, I'm going to bless the land because God said I'm, the land I'm leading you to is a land of, uh, filled with milk and honey. It was a term that he used to talking about the abundance that God would provide. And he said, you'll have rain on time for every harvest. You'll have rain for your crops. You'll have abundance of crops. I will bless you. You'll have more than enough food. Everything you need will be taken care of. You'll have herds. You'll have crops. You'll have animals. You'll have livestock. You'll have farm, you'll have cities, you'll have houses, you'll have peace from all your enemies. But he says, the moment you disobey me, when you start going away from me and you start worshiping other gods, he says, I'll hold back the rain. The very first thing God does, it did with Israel when they started getting away from God. And this is what happened there. God held back the rain. You understand what happens. If you have no rain, you have no crops. You have no crops, you have no food. You have no food, you're starving. When you're starving, the whole economy is affected. When the economy starts to decline, the economy is headed towards a collapse. When the economy collapses, the world markets are affected. Banking is affected. The markets are perfected. The, the commodities are affected. Everything's affected. There's no jobs. The economy's dropping. Things are calamity. Things are in a crisis. It was a terrible, terrible situation. And as we fast forward and go to chapter 18 of 1 Kings, the nation of Israel had gone for three and almost three and a half years with no rain. So look back at what happens here. Elijah is praying in accordance with the will of God that was recorded in Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 to 18. God, you, pro- you said in your word, you said to your people that if they get away from you, that you're going to hold back the rain. So God had a purpose to fulfill. And the purpose for Elijah was to pray for no rain. Now watch this. First month, nobody's bothered. Second month, nobody's bothered. Now they go through one season and know there's no food. There's limited crops and they've had a hard time. And people worried, how are we going to make it through winter? And how are we going to get through the next time? So people are still, they're still hard in their hearts. They're saying, well, maybe it'll rain next season. The next season comes up and there's no rain. All during this time, faithfully for every day, 365 days a year for three years and six months. Elijah is praying, God, hold back the rain. God, you said in your word, if your people love you, that you'll send the rain. But our pure people have not honored your name. They've gone away from you and they're worshiping idols and worshiping Baal. They're doing these wicked things. God, hold back the rain. He's praying specifically to hold back the rain. By the way, he's the only man alive during that time that's praying that God will not, that God will not send rain. The entire population, probably by about the, after the first harvest time, when there was no harvest, that after the first year, the whole nation of Israel now is thinking secretly we better start praying and so some of them have had, had, had conformed themselves to Baal worship and they're praying to Baal Baal's not going to honor that they're praying for Baal Baal's the god, the goddess and god of, 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 of fertility and crops and rain and listen that, that god could not answer them and send rain there was no rain from Baal and those people secretly in their homes started praying to Jehovah God and says God you got to send us some rain but God all these people across the landscape are praying for rain but God would not answer there's a loner here there's just one man 
praying in accordance with God's will. He's praying, God, send rain. And bear in mind this morning, we need rain. We need the rain of revival in our hearts. We need to pray for God to send rain in our lives. Because, listen, many of us, our hearts and our spiritual lives are parched and arid and dried up because we have not been in the presence of God. We've not prayed and read our Bibles and spent time with the Lord. We need to pray for God to saturate our souls with the rain of heaven today. And so this man was fervent in his endeavor. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained on the earth by three years and six months. Watch this. Being fervent in his endeavor, his praying changed the weather. You're fervent in your endeavor. Listen, there are things that God can change. Don't say God can't do it. Say God can. Because he can. Powerful praying sometimes is loner praying. Powerful praying sometimes is unusual praying. The Bible says in verse 17, he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. He prayed fervently. God, hold back the rain. Bring your people back to you. And God answered that request. It rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. What powerful praying. Now, sometimes we read something like that about Elijah. Well, we think, well, man, he was good for one big event. Yes, he was fervent in his endeavor. Yes, he was fallible in his essence. Yes, he was faithful in his essence. But I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 18 and notice he was frequent in his entreaty. He was frequent in his praying. The Bible says, and he prayed again. Listen, God does not, you and I, doesn't want you and I to resign ourselves to just pray for one big event, one big miracle, one big change. God wants us to pray again and again and again and again and again and trust God for great things that he will do. He says, call unto me and I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Romans 8, 31, 32 says this. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And he the spirit, not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall you not with him also freely give us all things? Listen, the Bible tells us in over in, in the book of Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Do you get something here? God told him not to pray to pray for no rain. And now he prays again and he prays this time for rain to come. Don't give up on your praying. Don't pray only when there's a crisis. Pray again and again and again. And God brought these circumstances to life. And notice, when did he pray again? Well, now we get to chapter 18. It's three and a half years later. And Elias now, God calls him, okay, Elijah, I told you three and a half years ago, go hide yourself. He says, now today, I want you to go show yourself. He says, it's showtime. You need to go show yourself to Ahab and you go present yourself to him because he says, I'm going to send rain. Elias, Elias does a series of things there. He has a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. He's outnumbered several hundred just to him. And the first thing he does, he assembles an altar. He drenches that altar with water. It's impossible for the, anything to ignite. There's no way that there was anything combustible there. And he prayed for God to send fire down from heaven. If you read this in 1 Kings 18, God sends fire down from heaven. And not only just consume the altar, consumes the water and everything around it. Well, right after that, now he's going to go, go ahead and do what God wants him to do. He goes all the way to the top, to the, to the apex there of Mount Carmel. And there on that apex, he kneels down, he puts his face between his knees, and he starts praying. And he prays for God to send the rain. Again, he does the same thing he did before. He's praying fervently. He's praying earnestly. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Now he's praying earnestly that it would rain. And seven times he prays, and he sends his servant out seven times to go check out what's going on. On the seventh time, the angel looked, the, the, the servant looks down, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I see something come from the horizon, something 
something arising out of the ocean. And she said, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. He was saying, hey, rain's on the way. There's a rain cloud happening way out there in the middle of the, of the water there, the Mediterranean Sea. It's coming. Water's coming. Rain's coming. Elijah gets up. He says, rain's on the way. He looks at King Ahab. He says, Ahab, you better get your chariot. You better get out of here. You better make a way all the way down the hill and get back to your kingdom. Because when the rain comes, there's going to be a mud storm that's going to come. It's going to come down so hard because there hasn't been rain for three and a half years. And you better get yourself out of here. And listen, rain came. And rain came in great abundance there. He prayed again. Listen, this morning, let's not be content with just seeing one major event in our life. May every day, every week of our Christian life be a place where we pray for God to do great and mighty things in our lives for His glory. He was frequent in His entreaty. Then notice in verse 18, He was fruitful in His enterprise. God held back the rain and later the earth brought forth her fruit. God answers prayers more than once. And God wants to answer your prayers more than once. First, no rain. The second big event he had while he was at the widow's home, he prayed for the widow's son to be given life. She had died. He prayed for this widow's son to get his life back. The third time, he prayed for fire to come down from heaven. The fourth time, he prayed. This is all in the space of three and a half years. These are the big events in his life. The fourth time, he prayed for rain to come down in abundance after a horrific three-year drought. Listen, he prayed again and again and again. He was fruitful in his enterprise. He was a man that consistently saw answers to prayer. No wonder James now is talking about this absolute principle and he wants us to see this practitioner and a practitioner that everyone acknowledge in their Jewish history, a man who saw consistent answers to prayer. Hey, would you be someone this morning that could change this generation? And would you be someone that would come alongside this pastor here and change our city and change the, the shape of missions and make a difference for God and not stop looking at our city seeing how bad it is and how sin is taking control and the riots and all these things. How about we just change some things to our praying? How about we be just like this man and be acknowledged practitioners of prayer and watching what God is able to do through your life and mine? As we close this morning, notice we see one more thing and I'm done. James is burdened for their prayer lives. James learned some things being under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, man, I've got to, we're going to reinforce these principles. So he talks about unanswered prayer. Then he talks about or the absence of prayer. And he talks about the, the absolute principles of prayer. And then he points to an acknowledged practitioner. And as we read all that, we kind of read this and we sit here and think, wow, he's just given us a major theological lesson about prayer. But notice one other thing. Look at, watch this. All this I've spent the last 40 minutes talking about is of no avail. It's of no use. If we don't take advantage of this abounding privilege. We start off asking the question, do you pray? Did you pray this morning? God knows our hearts. Is prayer only important when there's a crisis? When our job's at stake? Our health is going, going, going downhill? Or do we pray all the time? Is prayer to your Christian life? Is breathing as to your physical life? James 5.16, the factual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is a heavenly privilege. Beloved, as we close this morning, let's pray. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray for God to do great things. Let's pray for God to change lives. Let's pray for God to change the San Francisco Bay Area. 
Let's pray for souls to be saved. And there should be a whole lot of us this morning down the aisle today at the invitation time saying, God, I've got a father and I've got a mother. I've got a brother and I've got a sister. I've got a grandfather. I've got a grandmother. I've got a brother and sister. I've got some folks in my family, my, my home life that need to get saved. Listen, Brother Sutmar brought a very stimulating message this morning in our adult Bible hour about winning souls to Christ and not being procrastinators with the Christian message. And that should stir enough of us that we say, man, I've got some people I need to bring before God and pray that God will save their souls. I'm saying this morning, let's not talk about prayer. Let's pray. Let's Let's not just preach about prayer. Let's pray. Let's not just get into our little circles and fellowship and have our ice cream fellowships and let's have that. But let's pray. Let's pray for God to do something great in your life and mine. Let God change your weak and inadequate praying. Let God make us warriors of prayers. Let God use you and me to be instruments for His glory. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avail as much. Most of you, if you know your history, remember about the sinking of the Titanic in April 1912. It was one of, at that time, one of the most horrific events ever to occur. And there's so many stories about the Titanic. I, you know, when I read, the more I read about the Titanic incident, I'm amazed at just the stories that come out of that. There was a man on that ship after the hole was torn open when it hit the iceberg. His name was Colonel William Gracie. Colonel Gracie had kissed his wife and children goodbye with the intention of making the trip across the Atlantic from England all the way over to New York City. As you can imagine, the Titanic, the horrificness of the pandemonium, they didn't have enough lifeboats for all the people on that ship, just can you imagine that. And they made the decision that women and children first would be on the, on the lifeboats. And they had never, they had never, they just really didn't anticipate that something of that catastrophic nature would happen. And as boats were letting go, there were some occasions where a boat was let go, but they, they, it somehow, they, they just didn't position right and it would, it would break off the ropes that were sustaining it. And sometimes the boat would hit the water and there would be nobody in the boat. And it was pandemonium. The ship was sinking. As you many of you know, if you read, read the story there, that the ship became more upright and more upright like this. And as it became more upright, people were falling off in the water. It was a very horrific situation. William Gracie decided at that moment of time, he felt the pressure in his soul, realizing as a Christian that this could be it. I may be, ushering into, be ushered into the presence of my Creator today. And he was thankful he was saved. But he said, you know what? I've got to use my last waking moments to help all this, those people on this boat, as many as I can, to be survivors who can get in a lifeboat and make their way back, back across the shores there. And so he, he across the waters there and so they're helping get people there and then they came as they were helping people get off that it happened that the ship made an abrupt movement there and he and several others were thrust off that massive ship as he was down deep in the water the ship was going down as many of you read the story you know that there, there was like a whirlpool effect that happened when the ship went down Many of the lifeboats around there were just watching horror, watching people frantically in those frigid Arctic, those frigid Atlantic waters crying for help, and there's no one that could help them. William Gracie went under the water, he was submerged under the water, he got caught up in the whirlpool. And somehow, miraculously, William Gracie was able to make his way back to the surface in that frigid, cold Atlantic water. Just being in the water for a matter of minutes and you die. His head burst up out of the way out of the water and he gasped for air and he's shivering because of the coldness and he looks around him in that darkness and right by him, I'm talking about within a two arms distance, was a lifeboat that had slipped off the more off the ropes. There was nobody in it and it was flipped on its on, on where the pasture side was flipped on the top. 
was floating right there by him. And he made his way as he looked there and just awakened by the coldness of water. And he went over there and somehow there were a couple other men that were there. And they all saw that, that light phone. They flipped it over with all the strength they could while they were trying to bob up and down that frigid Atlantic water. And they flipped it upside down. And amazingly, William Gracie got in that boat with those other men. And he's a survivor of the Titanic incident. Little did William Gracie know that that night, exactly the time when the iceberg, when the, when the ship tore its hull on that iceberg, little did he know his wife back home was very anxious about this trip, been awakened out of her sleep by the Spirit of God. And his wife just had this panic mode inside her heart thinking, God woke me up. There's something not right. And what per- firmly pl- was implanted in her mind was the ship my husband's on is in trouble. She had no idea that it had sunk. And as water was filling up that Titanic, as it started turning on its side, as people were jumping off in panic, she began praying, God, I don't know what's going on on that Atlantic Ocean, but please don't let my husband drown. Please don't let my husband be a casualty. Please bring my husband back alive. And she began praying earnestly and earnestly and earnestly. She kept praying. The sun started to rise. She kept on praying. Now, I'm not explaining this if you've never been there like this, but there came a time as the morning sun was going up and it hit the 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock hour. There was a peace and a calm that flooded her soul. And the Spirit of God said, Mrs. Gracie, you don't need to pray anymore. Everything's okay. And news is just starting to hit both sides of the ocean. The unsinkable ship has sunk. As people with bated breath waited on New York Harbor and assembled over at the England Harbor, wondering what happened, who are the survivors? William Gracie was one of the survivors on a lifeboat who was salvaged because of the prayers of a wife who obeyed the Spirit's prompting to get by her bedside, who kept her life clean, who kept her life right, and obeyed the principle of James 5.16, the factual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Through her praying, her husband was salvaged and many other lives were salvaged by that incident. And I say that this morning as I close because what God did in 1912 God still can do in 2017. And what God did there that day in salvaging the physical life of man, God wants to do that with the spiritual lives of people today who are not saved. You see, all of us are on a ship that's on a downward spiral. If you're not saved this morning, you're on a downward spiral. You're good work. And by the way, that man could have done all the good works he wanted. He could, have, he could have decided that moment he wanted to join 25 churches. He could have decided to be religious. That would not have saved his soul. The only thing that would have saved that man's soul was his faith alone in Jesus Christ. And he already knew that before the incident occurred. I'm saying this morning, we don't know what incident may come in our life. But I will tell you this. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, you can be assured that you have eternal life in heaven awaiting you. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus promises us this, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Ship's going down. If you're not saved, Jesus has his hand extended. Would you grasp his hand by faith? 
Would you hold his hand and let him pull you out of the water? Would you let him save your soul today? Would you let him help you? Would you pray this morning, Christian? Would you make it a point that prayer will be as important to your Christian life as breathing is to your physical life? Father, this morning, thank you today for these wonderful principles of prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's capable praying. It's conditional praying. It's courageous praying. It's copious praying. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up many Elijahs in our room who will pray for great and mighty things. There are many this morning who are burdened for a loved one, a family member. I pray that, Lord, they'd show some courage and come and pray. I pray that husbands and wives would come and pray and they'd not be having fightings and wars amongst themselves, but they'd come and pray. I pray this morning for church members not to have fighting and wars amongst themselves, but to come and pray. I pray this morning that God would give us a great revival in our heart and deciding in our soul that prayer is an integral part of our Christian life. I pray that we pray just like Elijah prayed. And then this morning, perhaps there's someone here today who's not saved. Just like William Gracie, who God used salvage, but knew he was already saved. There's someone here today that's not saved. Their ship is on a downward spiral. They need to trust Christ today and receive a Savior. Would you prompt the hearts of men and women to trust Christ today? Quickly this morning, every head bowed and every eye closed. Time would say this morning, I can remember the day and the time and the place where I reached out by faith and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I know I'm 100% sure I'm going to heaven. You'd raise your right hand. I know I'm going to heaven. God bless you. You can put your hands in. Now, how many of you this morning who couldn't raise your hand? Because you know you can't point the place. You'd say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. But after today's message, I want to be sure I'm going to heaven. I want to be sure my sins are forgiven. Would you pray for me? There's someone you'd raise your hand and say, Pray for me, Pastor Fong. I want to be sure I'm saved and going to heaven. You'd raise your hand and say, Pray for me, Pastor. Pray for me. Anyone like that? Last week, thank the Lord for a man that said, I need to get saved. And he prays, raised his hand and trusted Christ to save. Is there someone else like that this morning? You're not sure you're saved, but you know you need to be. Father, prompt us this morning now the invitation to obey God. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Convict us, Lord, of our absence of prayer. But move us, Lord, towards the abounding principle. And, Lord, help us to take advantage of, Lord, the abounding privilege we have in prayer. Help us to be a people of God who pray. We pray now your invitation time that you'll bless and use. It may be a holy time that you'd use for Jesus' sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand while the uh, pianist is playing. And uh, Brother Vaughn's about to sing this morning. Would you come today? Would you surrender all? Would you come this morning? You need to get saved. You need Christ your Savior. Would you come this morning? You need to start praying and praying earnestly like this to sing answers prayer. How many are moved enough this morning? You feel compelled this morning that you know your prayer life needs to change. Several have come forward. Would you come this morning? Would you have God change your life? That you be a man and woman of prayer. Would you pray this morning? Father, I pray that's our prayer this morning. Move us to prayer. Change our praying. Change our lives. Father, honor the request here today. May there be a holy stirring in our hearts to obey God. May there be a generation of men and women today who will assemble and be in prayer. God bless, Lord, our what's been preached today and your word that's been advocated and given. And may you be glorified. We just are trying to do what you told us to do. If Jesus be lifted up, you'll draw men to yourself. Lord, may there be a holy stir in our lives to obey Christ. And we'll thank you for what you've done in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated for just a quick moment, if you would. 
And we want you to watch the Connect video for a few things we want to get you updated about. Well, two quick things real that we want you to take note of. Next Sunday, we're moving our Sunday evening service to an afternoon service at 2 o'clock. So if you can make note of that, I want you to be there for the 2 o'clock service. We have on the calendar the Lord's table will be uh, was to be uh, dispensed that, that afternoon, but we're uh, postponing that to another date. But so next week, our evening service moved to an afternoon service. And then tonight, being prayer for our evening service tonight, let's just be here in attendance and asking God to work through Pastor Tokero. He'll speak to our hearts, and we're looking forward to great things God will do. We look forward to shake your hand in the back there. And then, Brother Ren, I think you're closing in prayer for us this morning.